Lord, we give our lives to you afresh this morning. And we live under such an incredible blessing of your incredible, overwhelming love. We're thankful that we get to freely worship as we do. And we ask, oh God, that you would continue to shape our hearts, help us to understand and live out this identity we have in you, to experience all that you want to do in us, to be open to that work and respond with the way in which we live our lives for you. We honor you and worship you this morning. Amen. Amen. Please take a seat. Thank you, team, uh, this morning. Thank you for leading us. Uh, And good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you. Um, Welcome here. If you are new to uh, Seven Oaks, if you haven't been here before or uh, you've been here maybe a couple of times, I'm I'm Jamie and uh, I'm one of the pastors here. And I have the privilege this morning of getting in to unpack the scriptures for you on this Palm Sunday. Uh, can't wait to do that in just a few minutes. Uh, hello to our online community. We love you and hope you're doing well uh, at home today. And uh, I have some fun news to share with you uh, first off as we uh, begin. Uh, there has been an engagement in our church family. Uh, Mandy and Jordan, where are you? I didn't see you. Where are you guys? Oh, there they are. I'm blinded. I can only see like outlines up there, but uh, when I do that, I can see you. <laughs> so congratulations. We are so thrilled for the two of you. Um, we are going to be praying for you that as you enter this new season of life, that God blesses you and that you get to take in all of the richness of this exciting season. So we love you and congrats. Excellent. All right, church family. Um, This morning, uh, I am not going to preach in the sort of way that I normally do or in the form uh, that I normally do, which is, you know, when I sort of find some sort of way in, we read the scripture, um, I share with you some sort of results of some exegesis and interpretation, and then we uh, land on some application that we can apply to our lives. That's broadly speaking, the sort of form that preachers will often take. I'm not going to do that this morning. Uh, what I'm going to do is uh, uh, I'm going to actually teach this passage a little bit more, and I'm not going to land in application either. The reason, the reason I want to teach a little bit more is because I think this passage is actually profoundly misunderstood. I think people think they know what it means, but they don't know what it means. And so I'm going to teach it a little bit more, and then I just feel like I'm not going to leave application, but I'm just going to end the sermon and just let it sit as we enter into Holy Week as we journey towards Good Friday, for you to just sit with the passage and reflect as we move into this season. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm hoping to sort of set you up uh, for Holy Week. So uh, we're going to jump straight in, and I'm going to read the passage. We're in Mark chapter 11. Um, It is the the, the Palm Sunday passage that we're we're going to, I'm going to preach from. We're going to, we're going to, dive in together. Uh, We are in Mark's gospel, so I wanted to stay with Mark. I know we were in chapter 7 sort of two weeks ago, and um, we will go back to chapter 8 after Easter, but we want to to kind of follow Mark through on the appropriate sort of Easter passages. So uh, Mark chapter 11, and I'm going to read from verse 1 through to verse 24. So here goes. 
Um, by the way, just to say, uh, just to catch us up a little bit, uh, we've fast forwarded to the point that we, are, we have now reached the very last week of Jesus' uh, life. So they're on their way to Jerusalem. So it says this, when they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village ahead of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt, donkey, uh, that has never been ridden untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say to them, the Lord needs it and he will send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. And as they were untying it, some of the bystanders uh, said to them, "Uh, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and uh, and they threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. That's important. Remember that. And when he'd looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see whether perhaps he would find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it wasn't the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Then they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him. For they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and the disciples went out of the city. This is a different Jesus, isn't it? Uh, Verse 20, in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And then Peter uh, remembered us and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And uh, we'll actually just leave it there. We have just read, or I have just read to you, some very, very, very well-known uh, words, and well-known, a really, really well-known passage. And, and, and all across the globe, faith communities and churches will read this passage on Palm Sunday, seven days prior to Easter, and have done so for centuries. This is the Palm Sunday passage. And just like angels and shepherds and wise men and an inn, is synonymous with Christmas, and just like the cross and the resurrection are synonymous with Good Friday and Easter, so the triumphal entry, and to a lesser degree, the fig tree and the temple incident, are synonymous with Palm Sunday. But I feel like out of all this pa- these passages, this is the least understood. We, we get Christmas, we get Good Friday, we get Easter, we kind of get Palm Sunday. In fact, as I've said, I'm going to preach it in a way that maybe you've never understood this passage before, and you may disagree with me, and and that's okay. 
The part that I think that we've misunderstood is this cleansing, and I do it in brackets, this cleansing of the temple. I think we've misunderstood what that means. For many of us, we have Bibles, and in our Bibles, at the, at the beginning of every chapter or the beginning of every paragraph or few paragraphs, we often have titles, right? Moses receives the Ten Commandments. Um, uh, you know, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Jesus is crucified. You know those titles that we have? Well, probably many of you have Bibles that at the top of this passage, it says something like, Jesus cleanses the temple. I'm going to tell you, I don't think he did. I think that's wrong. And before anybody gets upset, I'm just assuming that everybody knows that's not part, those are not part of inspired scripture, right? The, we added those, all right? The titles weren't part of what the Holy Spirit inspired. Just like chapters and verses, they weren't inspired either. We added those later, and they're really helpful. They help us to find our way around. But this is not part of inspired scripture, just in case anyone thinks Jamie's going off the deep end. Um, I'm not. I think that title is, is, is an unfortunate one, and, and I don't think that's what's uh, going on. I don't think he's writing some wrong. I don't think he's trying to reform or cleanse or fix, the, uh, fix what's going on in the temple. I don't think he's doing any of that. I actually think he's bringing disruption. I actually think he's getting in the way of the temple. He's getting in the way of the sacrificial system. He's getting in the way of everything that the temple represents. He's not making it all nice again. A lot of people understand it this way and have maybe heard sermons uh, this way, that you know, the money changers were ripping off the poor, or they're ripping off the people, and, and they're they exchanging money, and, and, the peop- and they were lining their pockets and getting rich, and the people were getting poorer, and Jesus is really mad because that's an injustice, and so he turns over the tables of the money changers because what they're doing is wrong. I don't think that's what he's doing at all. I don't think that's really the point in the slightest. Now, it is true that Israelite people from all over the known world would travel to Jerusalem several times a year for different feasts and festivals. They did that. And so if you were coming from Galilee or somewhere, it would make absolute sense that you're not going to drag along you know, an animal that you're going to sacrifice at the temple. You might as well just buy it when you get to Jerusalem, right? I mean, that just makes sense. And they did that. It is also true that you were not allowed to use Roman or Greek coins in the temple when you bought your animal or paid your annual temple tax. And the reason is, it's because they had idolatrous images on them. So a lot of the Roman uh, coins would have a, a head of Caesar on it, and a lot of the uh, Greek coins would have some kind of Greek god or something. And this was profane currency, according to the Jews. So they had to exchange it into the good old temple shekel. So what they would do is they go to the money changers, they give them their Roman and Greek coins, and they would be exchanged into the temple shekel, and then they'd go and pay their temple tax or buy their animal. So the money changers were actually enabling worship to happen. They were providing a service that enabled the sacrificial system to occur. Now, they charged the surcharge. Well, of course they did. If you take a fistful of Canadian dollars and you go over the border, you have to exchange it for, I know most people use cards, but, but back in the day, and you want to change it into American money, you, you have to go to a bank or somewhere and you exchange it and they're happy to do that, but they're not going to give you the best exchange rate. They're going to make money off you. Of course they are. They're not a charity. They're a business. They're out to make money. And so they did charge a surcharge and that was okay. However, it is also true and we know this from ancient sources, that they did rip people off. They did do that. Sometimes they absolutely fleece the people. So if that's your understanding of the passage and you've had it preached in that way, it's not wrong. 
they were doing that. Jesus was probably upset about that. It's an injustice. I'm just saying I don't think it's the real main point. I think it's a side point that was also good that Jesus was doing, but I don't think that's why he turned the tables over. Some of you have also understood a good interpretation of this is that we shouldn't buy or sell things in church because it's the place of prayer and we profane the place of prayer. Jesus said, this is supposed to be a place of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. And so, you know, when in the past, when we've had big concerts and things like that, and the, 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 the band has sold CDs and people have been a little bit upset, we shouldn't be buying and selling in the church. Again, I don't think that's the point at all. In fact, I think that's an adventure in missing the point. That is not what this passage is about. I don't think Jesus was cleansing the temple. So what was he doing? Well, I'm not going to tell you yet. Uh, you're going to have to wait a minute because we haven't done the triumphal entry piece yet. So I'm going to start with a triumphal entry. Then we have the fig tree piece. Then we have the temple cleansing piece. And then we have a return to the fig tree again. So let's dive in. And I'm just going to get you to breathe in and lean in with me because this is teaching more than preaching. And so don't fall asleep. Uh, but we know a little bit of history. But it's really, really important that we get this, I think. About 200 years uh, before... The events of this passage is actually about 175 BC. Um, some events occurred that Jews today celebrate in, in the, the celebration of Hanukkah. You've probably all heard of Hanukkah. And they're celebrating something that happened in 175 uh, BC. Now, we know from the scriptures and we know from just history that the Assyrian Empire took uh, over Israel in 722 BC and took them off into exile. We know from the Bible and history that the Babylonians took over from the Assyrians, and in 586 BC, they took the southern kingdom of Judah into exile. We know that. We know from the Bible and from history that eventually the Persian Empire took over from the Babylonian Empire. And you read about that in the latter part of Daniel. You read about in Haggai and Ezra and Nehemiah and so on. And the Persian Empire was the powerful empire. We know, not from the Bible, but from history that the Persian Empire eventually fell to the Greek Empire. And Alexander the Great, when he was conquering the world and flexing his muscles and all that stuff, that happened after the end of the Old Testament, but before the beginning of the New. And we know that some years before the birth of Jesus, the Romans took over uh, fully from the Greeks, and the Roman Empire was the dominant world empire and stayed so for hundreds of years. We know that stuff. Between the death of Alexander the Great and when the Romans took over, the Greek Empire, after his death, split into various different uh, sort of mini empires under different rulers. And one of them was called the Seleucid Empire. And I believe we have a map of it. Yes, we do. That's the Seleucid Empire. And, and it, as you can see from that map, it, it was a large, large empire. The Ptolemaic Kingdom was kind of another part of the Greek Empire. It was, it was a separate one. It was over Egypt and so on. But the Seleucid Empire was over, you see, Syria and Damascus and so on. And the areas are sort of the Bible's concern. And, and in 175 BC, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes uh, took the throne, and he was your pretty typical despot, and he severely persecuted the Jews. And up to this point, Jews had been variously allowed to have a certain amount of freedom and their traditions were respected and so on, but Antiochus hated the Jews. 
And at one time, he actually rode into the city of Jerusalem, and he kicked down the doors of the temple, the precious temple where the Ten Commandments were kept, where the Jews worshipped, where the altar of burnt sacrifice was, and all of that. And he went in, and he sacrificed pig's flesh on the altar. And everybody knows how offensive that is to Jews. It was an unclean animal. They weren't allowed to be anywhere near. Pigs weren't allowed to own them, eat them, any of those kind of things. He boiled some pig's flesh and made a broth out of it and sprinkled it all over the holy vestments in the temple. By sword, he forced the high priest to ingest and eat pig's flesh. He did lots of other pretty awful uh, things as well. He allowed Zeus to be worshipped in the temple. I don't think you and I can quite understand the offense that this would be to the Jews, how awful this was, and the wickedness of these actions. And I gave you the PG version. I could turn your stomach by telling you the ways in which they slaughtered and killed and tortured lots of Jewish people. Antiochus was wicked. And what happened was it led up to the Maccabean Revolt. And maybe you've heard of that, the Maccabees. A group of Jews called the Maccabees went up into the hills and plotted overthrow. And led by Judas Maccabeus, they came off the hills, and it's actually a long history, and I'm simplifying it very much so. But in a series of uprisings, they eventually overthrew the Seleucid kingdom, and they went into the temple, and they rededicated and cleansed the temple. Did you hear that? They cleansed the temple. And they rededicated the temple. It was called the Feast of Dedication, which later became called Hanukkah, and that is what is celebrated today. And in the ancient world, you have to understand that um, conquering generals would often, uh, after they conquered a, an empire, or whatever, they'd walk into the capital city, usually with a long line of prisoners behind them, and they'd go straight to the temple. They'd go straight into the temple because what they understood was, my God is bigger than your God. Now I'm going to set up an image of my God in your temple, and that's why they worship Zeus in there, because my God has defeated your God. When Jesus entered into Jerusalem, he goes straight into the where? Into the temple. And he didn't set up some idol to his God because he was God. If you read Malachi, many of you will know from the book of Malachi that when it's talking about John the Baptist, and it talks about a voice crying out in the wilderness, and then it says there's a verse that, we don't, that isn't quoted in the New, and we don't often read it, but it says, and then the Lord will suddenly come to his temple. The Lord has suddenly come to his temple. During this time, with the victory of the Maccabees, the people sang victory songs as he marched into Jerusalem to rededicate the temple. And guess what they waved in the air? Palm branches. A symbol of Jewish victory over the pagan powers. In fact, uh, to prove that this is true, archaeologists have found coins that were minted at the time, and they have little symbols of palm branches on them. Palm branches become, became nationalistic symbols. They became symbols of overthrow of the pagan powers. And of course, the Jews wouldn't have their freedom and independence for very long. The Romans would see to that. But I'm telling you this background history because it is so, 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 so important for us to understand what would have been in the minds of the people when Jesus rode into the city and went straight to the temple. They picked up palm branches. Not just, the, oh, this would be kind of fun. You know, the kids will enjoy waving these, right, like flags. No, 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 this was a provocative image loaded with political um, meaning. And so it was a nationalist symbol. They sang hymns, and in fact, they sang Hosanna, which means, oh, God, save us. 
They sang, blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. There's no doubt what they were expecting to happen, what they thought was going to happen here. They knew who Jesus was, and, and they expected the Messiah to come and do a very specific thing. They were looking for a national liberator. There's no doubt that that's what they were looking for. And, and sometimes around Easter time, we can talk about how fickle the crowd is. You know, that crowd, how they were, you know, celebrating him on, on Palm Sunday. And then, you know, five days later, they're shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And we're like, how fickle? What was their problem? Well, yeah, but understandably so, because Jesus did not meet their, meet their expectation at all. Here's another messianic pretender that failed. He just gave himself over to be beaten and killed. Like, what's this about? I'll crucify him. He's just another one of these pretenders. Fickle crowd, yes. But understandably, he, he was another failed attempt. And sometimes I wonder, is that some of what was in Peter's mind when he denied him three times? Oh, man, I thought this was going to work out. It didn't. I, I don't know him. I've got to get out of here. Maybe. However... There's some differences. Jesus didn't ride on a war horse. He rode on a donkey. And the reason he rode on a donkey was partly to fulfill the prophetic word of the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, and partly to send a message that he wasn't coming in like the worldly kings and generals and liberators, but he was coming humbly. So the triumphal entry was rich with symbolism and religious and political fervency and nationalistic sentiment and messianic expectation with the Maccabean revolt in the background and once again the picking up of palm branches and all that that meant and the laying down of cloaks, which is, by the way, is what they did to King Jehu in the Old Testament. They absolutely expected him to be a king and to ride in in victory. This stuff had very specific meaning and symbolic value to it. And Jesus was both using that, in a sense, because he was a conquering king. He was coming in in victory. So Jesus used that, but he also uh, changed it. He also sent counter messages, such as the donkey, to present his vision of the coming kingdom. The triumphal entry, or maybe we could call it the atriumphal entry. So what about this cleansing of the temple? Well, the first thing to note is that the temple incident is bracketed. It sort of has parentheses around it by two fig tree incidents. And that's really, really important. They leave Bethany. They make their way towards the temple. And Jesus is hungry, and he sees a fig tree, and he goes over to see it has fruit. It doesn't. It's just leaves. And so he curses it. Then we have the temple incident, and then right after, Peter walks past. says, oh, remember that fig tree, Jesus, that you cursed? There it is. Look, it's withered right down to its roots. Like, trees don't usually wither so quickly. <laughs> it's withered right down to its roots. This is really, really, really important. It brackets the sandwich in the middle, and it's going to help us understand it. We'll come back to that at the end. I already said I don't think it's a cleansing. I don't think Jesus enters the temple to reform it to make sure the practices, you know, are in keeping with the law, to renew the priesthood, to correct what was wrong. That's the kind of thing Josiah did and Hezekiah did in the Old Testament. Cool, that was good. But that isn't what Jesus did. Um, 
It's what the people expected. It's, it's what Judas Maccabeus had done to come in and rededicate it and make sure that it was all as it should be. Now, the Romans weren't sacrificing pig flesh on the altar. They actually were a little bit more respectful than Antiochus was. But there was a whole bunch of reasons that we could say the temple needed reforming. I mean, for one, if we just want to use our passage, there were people ripping off the worshipers, for sure. So it begs the question, what else was up? What else was going on? And so the ruling elite, we know the Sadducees were often currying favor with Rome. I don't think we have any reason to doubt that there's all kinds of corruption going on. So, so did the temple need reforming? Absolutely, I'm sure it did. But did Jesus do that? Absolutely not. No, he didn't. Jesus goes in, he upends the table of the money changers, he drives them out, he stops people being able to come through, and scholars think that that was probably coming through with you know, the, the, the ceremonial washing jugs and things like that. So he actually, he actually got in the way of worship, he stopped worship, it'd be like storming onto this stage and like smashing Matthew's guitar or something. That would be horrible. Um, but he actually stopped worship, he disrupted it, he got in its way. That's what he was doing. He didn't cleanse it. He didn't reform it. And presumably, after he left, they picked up the tables. They gathered the coins that had fallen on the floor. They put them back on the table. They calmed everyone down, and they just carried on. So if it was a cleansing of the temple, if it was a reform of the temple, it wasn't a very good one. He stops it being able to function And I imagine the disciples probably looked at each other and thought, what was that? Was it because he didn't get figs for breakfast? Jesus was hangry. Mental note, we'll bring him a snack next time. Maybe he won't get so mad. No, if Jesus was only concerned about the money changers ripping people off, he would have turned the tables over and driven them out. Wait a second, he did. He did, yeah. But did you notice what else he did? He drove out the buyers. They weren't doing anything wrong. The passage says he drove out the sellers and the buyers. He was disrupting what was going on. This was a disruption of Israelite worship, not a punitive reform of those committing economic sin. I think rather than understanding this as a temple cleansing, a better title would be an acted parable of destruction. An enacted parable, and there are Old Testament examples of this, such as Ezekiel, where instead of the prophet prophesying the word of the Lord using words, they would do prophetic actions that sent the message. And I think that Jesus is in the long line of doing prophetic actions, acting out a a, a parable of the coming destruction of the temple and all that the temple represents. In fact, in chapter 13, two chapters from now, the disciples are going to say out on the Mount of Olives, oh, look, Jesus, isn't the temple cool? Look how wonderful it is and all those stones. And Jesus is going to say, you know what? Not one stone is going to be standing on another. Like he told them two chapters from now, it's going to be destroyed. It's going to fall down. Um, why? Why the t- temple destruction? Why is Jesus doing this? Well, for one, the temple belongs to the old covenant. Jesus is about to give his life as a ransom for many, his blood as a once-for-all sacrifice. Why on earth would he go and cleanse the temple and enable the sacrificial system to be reformed, knowing that in five days he's going to go and you know, hang on a cross as the once-for-all sacrifice, rendering the sacrificial system completely obsolete? Like, Why would he do that? It would make no sense. Secondly, Jesus is pretty clear that the temple is not only about to become obsolete. 
but it's become something it was never supposed to become. It was supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. It was supposed to be a place of radical welcome and worship. There was even a court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles were allowed in parts of it. But it's become a den of robbers, he says. Now, that is such an unfortunate English translation. Robbers is not the best word to use there, and that's why so many people think, oh, it's because they're robbing the poor. It's because they're robbing the worshipers. It's not the best use of that word. The word lestes in Greek, a better word is insurrectionist, the same word that's used for Barabbas or brigand. It's become like a brigand's cave, a place where brigands and insurrectionists hide out and plot overthrow and violent attack and uprising. It's become a haven for terrorists. It's become a place where zealots plot their attack on the ruling um, armies. The temple has become this symbolic center of Israel's bent towards violent opposition. It's become something that represents opposition to the nations, opposition to the Gentiles, instead of a place that's supposed to be a prayer for all nations. It's like taking a community center that's full of, uh, full of programs for the local community and turning it into a private house and putting up walls and keeping everybody out, putting up gates and so on. This is not Jesus' vision of the kingdom. He's not the next Judas Maccabeus, hence the donkey. He's not going to lead an uprising against Caesar. In fact, he told them before, pay your taxes to Caesar. Rent to Caesar what is Caesar's. Don't overthrow the government. Serve the government. They've been appointed by God. So he's not leading an uprising against Caesar. The walls of the temple are going to need to crumble if God's people are once again going to become all that God intended them to be. When Jesus dies, the temple curtain is torn from top to bottom. And who's the first person that says, oh, he was the son of God? The Roman centurion, a Gentile, right? Ah, the temple needs to go if the Gentiles are going to be blessed. Because right now you've made this a haven for Israel and it's a brigand's cave and you're just wanting to fight against the Romans, the zealots. I'm not here to do that, says Jesus. In Luke's account, we read Mark's, but in Luke's account, Jesus is on the road towards Jerusalem and he stops and he weeps. He weeps for Jerusalem. Do you know what one of the things he says is? He says this, if only you knew the things that make for peace... That's interesting. Why does he say that? If only you knew the things that make for peace, but now it's hidden from you, he says. And then he begins his prophecy about enemies surrounding you and hemming you on every side. Destruction is coming. And then finally, the fig tree incidents that sandwich the temple event. The fact that they sandwich it tell us that they're part of the story and they're important and they help interpret the temple incident. Otherwise, they're very random stories to insert in the Bible. Like if we think it's just about Jesus being hungry in a fruitless tree, then why is it in there? It's not about that stuff at all. And, and if it was, isn't Jesus a bit petulant? He's mad because he's angry, so he curses a tree. Like, that can't be it. And, and surely Jesus, who's 33 years old, knows at this time that this is not the season for, for figs. I think Jesus would know that. So that's not what this is about. It can't be about that. No, what it's about is the fruitless nation of Israel. 
The fig tree had long been a symbol of Israel. Hosea and other places compare Israel to a fig tree. This was about a people that God had entrusted to be his people, through whom the blessings would go to the world, to the Gentiles beyond. There are parables where Jesus says, you know, the owner has gone away, he's entrusted you with some of his resources, and when he comes back, he expects that you've done good things with it, but you haven't. You buried it, you hid it. There's parables about that. The nation of Israel had so failed to follow God and keep his law and avoid idolatry and bless the nations that became like a fruitless tree. They just had the leaves of religion left. And God had been a patient, 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 patient. But enough is enough. The curses of breaking the law will continue to come upon you as a nation and you will wither and die. The temple needs to go because I'm not interested in your sacrifices anymore. And you've turned it into a cave of brigands. And so he curses the fig tree. It's going to wither up and die just like the temple is going to be destroyed. You know, God, God wasn't even in that temple. Did you know that? You know how he comes and his power and his, his presence comes in the, in, 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 the, in the temple that Solomon built? Well, well, he leaves in the book of Ezekiel. If you read it, he actually leaves. He's Gradually, bit by bit, he kind of leaves the temple until he's kind of up. His presence is looking down on the temple, and he just goes. So God isn't in the temple anymore. And when they built the next one under Haggai, there was no indication in the scriptures that God ever came on that temple. So it was empty. God says, I'm not even in there. Um, I, I don't care about your sacrifices. You've just made that a cave of brigands. Not interested. And so I think this fig tree thing supports the idea that this temple incident is better understood as an acted parable of destruction rather than a reforming action or a cleansing. It's not about money changes, and it's not about buying and selling in the temple. But, but, though destruction and judgment are coming, the curse, curse on the fig tree, the curse on the temple, the curse on humanity since the fall will in five days move from those places and land on the Son of God. And he will take up that curse and Jesus will become a curse for us. And that ought to cause us to fall on our knees in worship. That's what he did. So yes, judgment. Yes, destruction. But mercy. Always mercy. Always love. Always reckless love. By the way, a few decades later in AD 70, you can read about it, the temple was destroyed by the Romans in the siege of Jerusalem. Apparently, the people didn't listen to Jesus. Of course, they didn't. They, they crucified him, right? And so they continued to treat the temple as a cave of brigands. And in the most stupid move ever, they rebelled against Rome and tried to fight against Rome. Um, and of course, they didn't win. And um, you can read about it, and it's brutal. There was a brutal five-month siege because the Romans had to knock down some pretty big walls and they were in no rush because the people were starving themselves inside and again it's uh, I'm giving you the PG version it's pretty brutal if you read about it um, but the Romans eventually under um, under Titus the general who became emperor um, they went in and they burned the thing to the ground and not one uh, rock was on another and actually I've been to Rome before and outside the Colosseum is the arch of Titus Titus is the general 
And in it, if you actually go underneath the, I don't know if he's still allowed to or not, but if you go underneath the arch, you can see the relief, and you actually see reliefs from the siege of Jerusalem. You see them carrying off the menorah and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's really sad. But that was when they, when they uh, destroyed the temple, and it's never been rebuilt. It got destroyed because they continued to rebel. They didn't heed Jesus' warning, and it's gone. And I think that the incident, is fair to say, is one of the main events that sealed Jesus' fate. It even said in the passage, now, after that, they look for a, a way to kill him. Like, you don't speak out against the powers in this world and live to tell the tale. His outspoken denunciation of the temple, Jewish leadership, the prophetic words, the crowds that were following him and, and claiming to be Messiah, all of this stuff eventually led to Good Friday. And so church family and friends, we've done far less triumphal entry. Let's wave the, uh, the um, palm tree uh, front things today. And we've actually felt the darkness and the heaviness of this passage. And maybe you're feeling it. And I would say, good. I hope you do feel it. Because you should. We're supposed to feel that way <clears throat> as we journey towards Good Friday. So may that set you up for Holy Week as you reflect on it. Amen.